0: well just real quickly before we start this morning it is not uncommon to do you know sermons on a particular text that are part one and part two and sometimes part three and part four um, it is less common to to literally only get halfway through the notes of a particular sermon and uh, completely run out of time and, and have to pick back up in the middle of the next week. So I will do the best I can to kind of bring everybody back up to speed. I know we had a lot of folks that were out of town last week and those sorts of things, and we'll try to get all back on the same page as we continue to press forward into Amos chapter 7. But I will say this, if you did not get last week's, it would be worth your time in light of this sermon to listen to the one from before. Okay, there we go. I don't normally give pitches for the sermons I preach, but intellectually spiritually it may be a bit necessary all right once again this morning as we continue in the book of Amos in chapter 7 looking again at verses 10 through 17 in the hard word part 2 now the background for the book of Amos is the sin of Jeroboam the 1st that he caused Israel to sin with this sin was not simply demonic paganism, but instead Jeroboam refashioned God in a manner that he thought he needed him to be, his own little plastic Yahweh. He said, this, O Israel, is thy Elohim that led you out of Egypt. And having the immutable standard of righteousness, the plumbob, if you will, certainly God will, The plumb bob of righteousness removed from the midst of the nation, they immediately fell into the vilest of depravities, the madness of the fallen, believing their own deceitful hearts above the truth of God that was so clearly placed before them. And so centuries later, during the reign of Jeroboam II, his namesake, in two years before the great earthquake, Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, just right outside of Jerusalem he saw not heard he saw a word from the Lord and the word that he saw was this the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers and all of this occurs when a very partial God shows no partiality there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than any that has ever come out of hate and so the word of the lord to them is woe woe to you particularly to those who are the least willing to be woeful to those who are at ease to those that feel at ease and feel secure and yet the reality is is that their feelings do not match their reality For indeed, they will soon find that they are neither easy nor secure. We might ask ourselves for a people that have been given the very words of God, the very oracles of God, Paul says in the book of Romans, why would you stay in denial unto your own destruction? Why not face up to the truth and repent and do something different? And the answer is because they bring their God in their own hands. When you retool God, when you retool Yahweh, when you retool Jesus Christ to look the way that you would prefer Him to look instead of the way He presents Himself as eternally in His holiness, when your God looks an awful lot like you, you end up looking awfully righteous when in actuality you're not. And such provocation will cause a holy God to swear. And having nothing greater to swear by, he swears by himself. He swears by himself the promise, the salvation that is to be in Christ Jesus. And he swears by himself death to those who would trample it underfoot. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. So, The judgment that Amos sees in chapter 7 is not by locust and it is not by fire, things that Amos would protest against much, but instead it is by the righteous line that is Jesus Christ. Note I didn't say the righteous line of Jesus Christ as though there is some standard of righteousness that he upholds that is apart from him, But instead, the righteous line that is Jesus Christ. The judgment of God that would come upon the people of Israel is nothing less than God himself. Amos is at a critical point in chapter 7. He has seen the word. The question is, is can he proclaim it? Amos would have to accept, he would have to trust that God is good and knows what he is doing in the midst of the most difficult things because of Amos. Very hard things, very risky things, very dangerous things would be required. So in chapter 7, in verses 7 through 9, we see the judgment line of Christ himself be shown to Amos, and we see Amos's response. And in verse 7, it says, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. What is Amos's response to seeing this word? Contrary to his previous responses to judgment by locusts and judgment by fire, where Amos would plead with the Lord that he not do this thing for Israel, for Jacob cannot survive it. Instead, when the judgment of God is the presence of God himself, the prophet of God remains silent. He says nothing. He says nothing before his God But he goes about proclaiming much to those to which the hard word comes. A word that the false priest of Bethel will claim is unbearable for both the people... And the kingdom In Amos chapter 7 and verse 10 through 13, it says that Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words, for thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. The land cannot bear the word of the Lord, Amaziah says. Why? Because the place that it is being proclaimed, the identity of the land, is not defined by God himself, but instead is defined by the king. For this is the king's sanctuary, is the argument that the false priest makes. This is the king's temple. This is the worship of God on the government's terms, but not on his terms. Amaziah panics. At the word of the Lord, he appeals directly to Jeroboam the second, and he writes to him and says that the word that Amos preaches is a threat to your very life. Now, you'll notice that nowhere does Amos proclaim a word that is threatening here the life of Jeroboam the second, particularly. But instead, the word of the Lord comes to him and says that I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, the house of the king being defined by the king, it is not a large logical jump to think that the sword might fall to him as well, but certainly Amaziah takes it that step whether the Lord would or not. He does so because for those that hold their God in their hand, the word of the Lord is death to both their God, and by extension, without repentance to them. And we see that example at the very beginning of this kingdom, not in Jeroboam the second that Amos is speaking to here, but instead to Jeroboam the first. For the prophecy that Amos is preaching has been preached in Israel for centuries. The spirit of prophecy that is the testimony of Christ, according to the revelation, has been moving amongst this people for generations. As a matter of fact, it began at the very beginning with Jeroboam II's namesake, Jeroboam I. We having raised up these two golden calves and counterfeited the worship of Yahweh in Israel and said, "This O Israel is thy Elohim who led you out of Egypt, don't turn again to worship of Yahweh at the temple don't turn again to Jerusalem, don't turn again to the law, lest your hearts be led away from my kingdom and to the kingdom of David of this very one it is written in first Kings chapter fourteen verses ten through eleven the King James is the only one who has the guts to translate it like it's written. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it all be gone. Him that dieth of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat, for the Lord hath spoken it. The law of God specifically said no excrement in the camp. Not simply because that was how you kept the camp clean and sanitary and diseased down, but specifically because he was a holy God. And he walked in the midst of his covenant people and he... Would not be fouled by seeing any indecent thing. And yet, for those who take your God in your own hand, they will do any vulgar thing they please. And therefore the punishment will fit the crime. And those that die in the city will be eaten by the dogs, and those that die in the countryside will be eaten by the carrion, by the fowl of the air and none of Jeroboam's men with the exception of his infant child will ever see the grave but will be blotted out from under the face of heaven we see the fulfillment of that prophecy the destruction of Jeroboam's bloodline just one generation later at the hands of Basha. all of this comes to pass and none see the grave but become the objects of scavenger's desire. And yet, God is not satisfied. He is not finished. In 1 Kings chapter 14, in verses 14 through 16, the word of the Lord to the house of Jeroboam and to Israel is this, and it is a, two part word of judgment for the sin that they have committed and in verse 14 moreover the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel that is Basha, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today that is happening soon that is happening in this time frame today and henceforth not today but that which is still to come Henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to her fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And He will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And so the Lord says the judgment upon the king and the kingdom looks like this. It is both today and it is henceforth. And today, within the hearing of the generation that is bearing witness to these very events, he will cut off the line of Jeroboam. And he will leave none but henceforth yet to come. He will turn his eye not simply from the household of the king but to the kingdom which followed after him in his sin once again this isn't the first time that people have heard this word of judgment when you start understanding the way this is just layered up year after year after year generation after generation decade after decade century after century you start to understand why Amaziah when he heard the word of Amos began to panic the way he did this has been going down for a long time just a chapter back in First Kings thirteen one through 4, on the very day when Jeroboam was dedicating these blasphemous false gods to the people of Israel, it says, Behold, in verse 1, the man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. Now, I know we delved into this a little deeper last week. I just want to point it out again. Man, you see the faithfulness. You see the surety of God in his prophetic word. You are centuries before the birth of Josiah, and the Lord is calling his king by name. Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him, and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up. It desiccated. The Hebrew has in its mind beef jerky. It dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Okay, so the question, I think, is this. If you have the king who sins in a particular way, and as goes the king, so goes the kingdom, and he leads Israel into this same sin, they join with him into this sin, and then having removed God as standard and having removed the plumb line, then it's just, at that point, just kind of Katie bar the door. I mean, just do whatever you want. Bring your God in your hand. Make him whoever you want him to be so he will excuse whatever you want excused and you'll look very righteous, and you will feel at ease, and you will feel feel secure even when you're actually not. If that's the sin that he committed, and that's the sin that Israel followed him in, why is there this dramatic delay? Why is there a difference between blood and bones? Why the difference between the king and the kingdom? Why is it that within this generation today, all of the Males of the household of Jeroboam will die in the streets and in the fields and become scraps for the carry-on, and yet the sentence for the nation which is committing the same atrocities is centuries away. Why does judgment come swiftly on the king but delay to come upon the kingdom? And if you know your history here, I think one of the things that being an Amos has really done that has been healthy for us is it has forced us to go past kind of the surface moralistic stories of the Old Testament and press into the depth of what is there moreover if you know your history by the time the prophecy of henceforth is fulfilled by the time that Josiah is Sacrificing and priest and burning bones on these altars? By the time he's doing that, the kingdom of Israel has not existed in over a hundred years. The fall of the northern kingdom comes at the hand of Sennacherib in 722 B.C. The 18th year of Josiah is 622 B.C. And so you have to ask yourself, if you're God and you're bringing forth justice through judgment, and justice is good. Now, nobody likes judgment when it falls on them, but we can all agree that justice is good when righteousness is the standard. And so if you're a good God bringing forth justice by your righteous standard, why? What, what's the point in waiting... Until the very kingdom that you've spoken of has been uprooted and dispersed for a full century before you come and bring this judgment upon the, the altars, upon the, upon the high places, upon the idols, upon the very sinful thing that brought about their exile to begin with. Why wouldn't you do that before they fell or as they were falling? Hey, Israel, Israel. I told you, here's what was coming. I'm destroying this blasphemous thing, and you're going off into captivity. Why take them off into captivity and let these things stand for a century before you tear them down? Well, I think we begin to see the answer to that in the fact that the house of the kings of Israel, all the kings that came after Jeroboam's son to bat, none of them are of Jeroboam's house. That's the whole point of this prophecy. I'm going to kill every one of you. I'm going to kill every one of you. There will be none left. And this Bashar rises up, and he is of a different lineage. He is a different guy. And the kingship of Israel flips over a couple of more times after that. While the houses of the kings of Israel might not be Jeroboam's descendants by blood, they are his descendants by spirit. And I would argue to you that that is a much more profound reality than the line of blood. Remember, all of this is happening because of 1 Kings fourteen sixteen, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. What we see in the kings that come after the house of Jeroboam and in Israel itself, is an example of spiritual descendants that is the polar opposite of those who come as children of Abraham by faith. Paul speaks about the children of Abraham by faith in Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 in this way. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? For just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, just as Abraham received this miracle where believing something was counted as something more significant than belief, just as it was Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, if you know anything about the discussion that was going on in the church when Galatians was being written, there was a lot of tension between blood Jews that had come to faith in the promised Messiah and Gentiles who had come to faith in the promised Messiah. There was a lot of fleshly strife that was going on there, and these Judaizers that wanted to hold up a law that supposedly was superior to the lawgiver wanted to say, well, if you're not the blood of Abraham, then to some degree you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom. We don't have the time to go into all of it this morning, but I think most of you are pretty well aware. We covered it a lot in Romans. I know Mark and Jim have both covered it a lot in Sunday school. And Paul says to them, the reality of your existence, the foundational baseline by which you are reckoned before God is not one of your race or your creed or your family crest. You will be reckoned according to the Spirit. Period. And so here you have all of us Gentile mutts gathered together today who in faith that is the gift of God by the miracle of grace can say we are the sons and daughters of Abraham and stand in that promise likewise. It is not the only Spirit that brings forth sons and daughters. And so Basha, the destroyer of the house of Jeroboam I, may have wiped out his bloodline, but he didn't even come close to cutting the head off the snake. He is the next head of the snake. The destroyer of the house of Jeroboam I did not depart from the spirit of Jeroboam I. He might as well have been his firstborn. It says this in 1 Kings fifteen thirty three In the third year of Asa king of Judah, Basha the son of Ahijah began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin in which he made Israel to sin. He was a good boy. followed right in his predecessor's footsteps, and so would every king to sit on the throne of Israel. Because there is a spiritual reality that exists behind and defines the kingdoms of this earth. You want to know why? You would think if a guy come in and whacks a king and all of his family and replaces him, then he's going to start doing his own thing. He's going to do something different. I mean, just common sense. Common sense would tell you you should do this. If you come in to a kingdom, kill the king and all of his family and supplant him and become the new king, you wouldn't want to do the same things that king is doing because the things that king was doing allowed you to come in and kill him and all of his progeny and take his place. And you know what they say? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. So common sense ought to say, man, if I did this to this guy, maybe he did have it coming, but I need to do something different. But that's not what these guys did. Over and over, they did the same thing. Again and again and again. Because the reality is, is these men are not defining the kingdom. There is something behind the kingdom that defines the kingdom, is defining them, and to a very large extent playing them like a willing puppet. There is, Scripture teaches, a spiritual reality behind the kingdoms of this world. They're not just the kingdoms of men. Look in Daniel. So if you're know if you in, I know, minor prophets throw everybody off. If you're in Amos, go left. Just a couple of books. You'll find yourself in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, um, if you guys have been part of the eschatology series over the last several years. You're probably pretty familiar with this. In Daniel chapter 9, let's fast forward history here for a little bit. All of these things have come to pass. Israel has been carried off into captivity and scattered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are halted one last time at the gates of Jerusalem by the hand of God himself. The kings of Judah come and go. Josiah comes, he does his thing, he goes... Judah eventually goes on a very similar path that Israel went on and Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem and he takes Judah into captivity as well and Daniel is one of those guys and here he is in captivity and he is distressed having read the book of Jeremiah. Did you know that the Old Testament prophets read the Bible too? Right? He's reading the book of Jeremiah and he understands from the book of Jeremiah that the captivity of Jerusalem is going to be 70 years and his heart is breaking and he's crying out to God on behalf of his people. And he's not crying out to God going, hey, listen, we're good folks, we just made a mistake, will you let us off the hook? You know, If this cop don't cuff me and stuff me, I swear I'll never do it again. He's not doing any of that kind of stuff. He's going, Lord, it is our fault, we are guilty, you are righteous if you're going to save us for anything, save us for your own name. He's pouring his heart out in chapter 9. And the Lord dispatches the angel Gabriel to give the answer to the prophet Daniel. Daniel's been praying for 21 days. He's been praying for 21 days. And I don't mean he's been saying a prayer two or three, four or five times a day for 21 days. I mean the dude's basically been sleeping and praying for 21 days. In chapter 9 and verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at first, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Man, that's saying something, because Daniel was a sharp cat, man. He is basically the prime minister of Babylon at this point. He is a smart, sharp dude. And even with the prophet Jeremiah open before him and the Lord showing, he just he, there's things he can't figure out. Gabriel says, I've come to give you wisdom. I've come to give you insight and understanding. I'm here so you'll get it. Because there's a lot of hard things that are going on, Daniel. But God is good. So I'm here so you can get it. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, the word went out. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Daniel's been praying for 21 days, and from the very moment he began praying and asking God to understand what is going on and for the salvation of his people and the reestablishment of the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem, from the moment he started asking for that, God answered. And yet it's been 21 days. Why has it been 21 days? Why does it take an angel who comes swiftly in flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, why does it take him 21 days to show up? He has been delayed. We find out why in Daniel chapter 10. Now, notice Daniel says this is the same one that came to him in the first vision. And in the first vision what Gabriel showed him was that there were four kingdoms yet to rise out of the earth. Babylon Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome 1.1 and Rome 1.2. And that these four would each come in their ordained time. And so here he is in Babylon, the first of the last four. And In Daniel chapter 10, verse 11, he said to me, O Daniel, Man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, and he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to you in the later days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. Now, Daniel's a reference text this morning, so we won't go back and, and look at that all of the background, but you can look at it in your own time if you want to. And basically, here's the story. Notice Daniel, the prime minister of Babylon, the most glorious power in the world in its day. This guy literally answers to no one at this point except for Nebuchadnezzar himself. No one. He gets a load of Gabriel and it says he falls down as though dead. His strength leaves him. He is not able to speak. The reason is, is understandable when you read the description of what Gabriel looks like. It says that he had the appearance of bronze walking out of a hot furnace. He's literally on fire. I had some had the opportunity as a kid to be around quite a bit of metalwork. And I'm telling you, when that stuff comes out of a 14, 1500 degree crucible, it's impressive to look at. This dude is not a human. He comes in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice, looking like bronze, walking out of the furnace, a voice that says sounds like the rushing torrent of many waters. And the prime minister of Babylon takes one look at him and just goes dang near catatonic. Okay, with that in mind, Gabriel says, I'm late, (laughs) it's been 21 days. Why? Well, I've been caught up with the prince of Persia. (laughs) I came as soon as the Lord dispatched me, but the prince of Persia has has held me up for 21 days. Okay, well, at this point in time, historically, the princes of Medo-Persia are just kind of these backwater, subjugated people underneath the kingdom of Babylon. And I don't know who the prince is at this time. Tom could probably tell you, I don't know who the prince is at this time, but he ain't got nothing on this dude. If Daniel can't speak in front of him, then the prince of Persia, contrary to whatever video game you may play, has not been holding him up for 21 days if we're talking about the guy in Susa. And we're talking about something else. He says it took Michael, one of the princes, the archangel, to get him off my back. The prince, the kings of Persia that are being spoken of here are not men. The prince and the kings of Persia that are being spoken of here are the fallen angels that have been given charge over the rise of the kingdom of Medo-Persia that is soon to come. And what Daniel is asking for and what Daniel is delving into and sticking his nose in is problematic for their agenda and so man they just give it to Gabriel for 21 days now look I've said this before I'll say it again the thing that impresses me so much here is the character that you see in this angel because he's not an archangel Gabriel's a messenger He knew the moment that he was dispatched with that message that he was being quote-unquote sent behind enemy lines and that he was fully outmatched, that he was not able to handle them, and he went anyway. Not only did he go anyway, but he specifically tells Daniel, when I leave, they're going to be waiting on me. He continues in verse 18 and says again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage." And as he spoke to me I was strengthened, and he said, and I said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold the prince of Greece will come. But I tell you I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth there is none who contends by my side except against these except Michael your prince. And so here's Gabriel, and he says, look, man, the Lord sent me down here with a message for you. And when he sent me, I knew I was in trouble, and I was right, but I went anyway. I've been getting my tail kicked for 21 days by, by beings that before the fall were a higher order of creation than me, and they are still a higher order of creation than me, and they are just pounding me, man. And as soon as we're done here, I'm going to split and go back and they're waiting on me and the only one that will fight with me against them is Michael himself. And the deal is, is when the princes of Persia go, the princes of Greece are coming. There's no end in sight here, Daniel. Such are the nature of the kingdoms of men. travel the world and you look at these great empires of the past one of the things that struck me the first time that I was in Rome was that these these people had this some somewhat air of well, they certainly had their nose pretty high in the air right they had this They had this this feeling of superiority like they had a particular place in the world. And yet, most of them smelled like they needed a bath. Their infrastructure was crumbling. Their streets were dirty. Most of their clothes looked like they had been worn even more times than I would wear a pair of jeans before I wash them. (laughs) And, And you see kind of the the afterglow of the greatness of the empire. What used to be, but you look around at what they have and the condition they're living in, and you go, how did you ever rule the world? How did this this little village that was founded around these seven hills right there on the Tiber River, how did it ever rise to just this world-dominating prominence that it had? This is how. And if you want to see one, the first one's the most amazing. I mean, Babylon is the proverbial flash in the pan. They came out of nowhere. They went to nowhere. When Hezekiah was on the throne in Jerusalem, they showed up groveling with gifts, just trying to hopefully curry some favor from the king of Judah. And it's not like he was high up the food chain. It wouldn't be long before Sennacherib was outside his gates. And in just a few generations, all of a sudden they're the most glorious kingdom on the planet. And in just as much time, it's gone. For this is what is ordained. There is a power behind the kingdoms of men that is more than men. There is a spiritual reality of the kingdoms of this world. Scripture calls it lawlessness, the partnership of the fallen. It is what Paul is speaking about in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If you do the word work there in the Greek, it is we wrestle against the beginning ones, we wrestle against the unhindered ones, we wrestle against the cosmos kratores, which means World holders. The world holders. Here they are called the kings of Babylon and the kings of Persia and the kings of Greece and the Kings of Rome. They are the spiritual reality that defines these kingdoms. One of them was the spiritual reality that was defining the kingdom of northern Israel under the spiritual lineage of Jeroboam the first and so Jeroboam's gone but the spiritual reality doesn't change it continues it continues it continues as a matter of fact at some point everybody amongst the people side of the lawlessness coin is gone they've been taken off beyond the Euphrates but the demonic reality persists Why wait until after these people have been carried off before you fulfill this prophecy about the destruction of this spiritual evil because there is more that is being destroyed here and there is more that is being testified to here than simply the kingdoms of men. As a side note, it ought to inform our politics. Be careful who you join with. Just because they've got talking points that you like. I'm telling you guys, if you don't have somebody that, that, that you have faith is a member of the kingdom of God, then you are dealing with something governmentally that is partnered up with something that is the polar opposite. We see the coming of Josiah and the fulfillment of this prophecy of judgment against not only a king and his earthly, his human kingdom, but against the fullness of that kingdom, the king, the people, and the demonic reality that is behind it. And if you're going to have a king that's able to come and deal with judgment at that kind of level, then the first thing you have to have is a righteous king. It will not be sufficient for Josiah to simply begin with a good social policy in the land of Judah. That won't be enough. What you have to have is a man that has a spirit in him that is capable of doing more than Gabriel and that's exactly what we find. And so the Lord has ordained this, the Lord has prophesied that this king is coming out of the house of David his name's Josiah and he is coming against all of these things that are something that is massively larger than men. How are you going to do it? You better be born again. 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings 22 in verse 1 through 13, Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah. Jedi, Jedi, there we go, I think. You practice these and you get them right, and you say you're not going to mess them up, and then you get up here and you mess them up every time. It's wonderful, keeps you humble, Make sure everybody knows you're a redneck from Arkansas, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now this is a summation of Josiah's kingship. With all these kings you get a summation before, you get a summation after, you get the narrative in the middle. So how did he become this guy that walked in the ways of David, that walked in the ways of the Lord and did not turn to the right or to the left? Okay, he didn't start that way. As a matter of fact, it took him 18 years on the throne before God dealt with Josiah to make him the man that God had ordained him to be. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king set Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Mishalim, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is to the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked of them for the money that is delivered in their hand, for they deal honestly. And so here you have a king, seems like a decent enough guy. He's caring. He's doing what, you know, government's supposed to do. He's providing a standing defense and a standardized currency and providing for public infrastructure and the temple's in bad shape. And so we need to get that thing fixed up. So in verse eight, Hilkiah, the high priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. This is God's people, man. And they wouldn't, they didn't even know where the book of the law was didn't even know where it was, much less what it said. And yet they would claim to be God's people. It's interesting to me how much today there's Bibles in every household, and yet so few people actually know what they say or ever pick them up, though they would claim to be God's people. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Man, I don't know about you, but I get goosebumps just reading that. I mean, here's this king, and he's like, Listen, We found something, and it probably needs to come to your attention. And he could have just given it to him, but he takes it upon himself to deliver the word of the Lord to the king, and he read it to him. You understand, this is the law. This is the first, this is the Pentateuch, this is the first five books of the Bible. This was no small task to read this thing to him, and he reads it to the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, because man, the Holy Spirit brings forth the effectual call, it doesn't come, it doesn't come from salesmanship, it doesn't come from, from the influence of men. The Holy Spirit brings forth the effectual call. Man, he just read the law to him. Anybody that's ever sat down to do their read your Bible thing in a year knows that it goes pretty well until you get to Numbers and things get real tough, right? I'm here to tell you, if the Holy Spirit's convicted, if you're being convicted out of the book of Numbers, it's not because of the skills of the guy that is reading it verbatim off the page to you. This is the work of God himself. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Echbor the son of Micaiah and his servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. When you read what he says, you get the impression that the light bulb comes on, the Holy Spirit flicks the light on for Josiah. He realizes, you know, there's unconsciously incompetent... It's a very dangerous place to be, but it leaves you feeling very at ease and very secure. As you move along, kind of the progression away from that, the next thing you become after unconsciously incompetent is consciously incompetent, and it is terrifying. It's the difference between strolling through the minefield because you don't know in your minefield, and all of a sudden you see the sign that says mines, and you just lock up. Because you realize that you're in extreme amount of danger. You're completely in over your head. You have no idea where the minds are. And the very next step, or if you know anything about modern minds, even picking your foot up from the current step you have might be the end of you. You may get misted at that point. And he says, man, what are we going to do? The wrath of the Lord against us is Great. Chapter 3, verse 1 or 23, verse 1 through 3, we see what he does. What he does is dive in to the word of God that he has found and into prayer, and he ceases being consciously incompetent to working his way towards consciously competent. He learns what the word says. He learns what he is supposed to do both as a member of the people of Judah but specifically as the king of Judah. And so in verses 1 through 3, it says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes." with all his heart and with all his soul and to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people rejoiced in the covenant. So here you have Josiah. And so when he figures out what's going on and he figures out what is required of him and what the word of the Lord says, he wants to get all the people together. And he says, okay. And he stands up in front of them and he swears the covenant to the Lord. And then he does the same thing to the people that his secretary had done to him. And we're going to read you all the words of this covenant. Here it is. Now, that being said, we've been talking about this in Judges on Wednesday night. There is a lie that begins in the heart of men that Satan will throw gasoline on that tells a lost man under conviction, a lost little girl under conviction, a lost little boy, a lost woman under conviction, that they are... Yes, indeed, God is a holy God, and and what you've done, you are too foul to come to him, and so you need to clean up your act before you can come to faith. And that is, it is a beautiful lie. Maybe beautiful is not the right word. It is an exquisite lie. How about that? It's very good at what it's trying to accomplish. Because when you look at a holy God, you know the only way you're coming to that God is to become holy. And you're very much not And so then you set off after this pattern trying to scrub yourself clean, and it just doesn't work, man, because unholy is as unholy does. And so it just gets worse and worse, and you become more and more discouraged. And before you know it, you've spent your life, and it is over and done. And you're not any closer to being able to come to the God of salvation than you were before. Man, it is a lie. The only way you're going to be wide enough for him to be satisfied. The only way you're going to be clean enough for him to be satisfied, the only way you're going to line up to the plumb line is if he himself lines you up. That being said, once... Salvation has come then there is much work to do in sanctification and sanctification always starts at home and so Josiah says first problem is me I got to get my stuff squared away he does that now we've got to get home squared away Judah is the most important thing he stands up amongst the people he tells them the score he reads the word of the law to them. he swears to commit to the things that the Lord has required the king to do and one of the things that the Lord has required the king to do both in the positive and the negative he has required him in the positive To to promote the worship and the glory of God amongst the people of Israel, and in the negative to destroy that which would stand against it. So having promoted the worship of the one true God in Judah, what does he do? He goes on an idol destroying rampage. I mean, it is like you need a you need a movie montage. And basically, if you read verse 4 all the way down through um, verse 14, that's exactly what you got. It is just Josiah whacking one installation after the other. He takes his men and he goes to the high places, he rips them down, he kills the priest. He goes to the Asherah poles, he rips them down, he burns them, he kills the priest. He goes to the temple, he takes everything out of it that has been set aside and consecrated to anything that is false. Piles it up, burns it, takes the ashes and goes and dumps them in the brook Kidron. Wash this filth away. He tears down stuff that Solomon himself put up. He is on a tear, man, until he gets it done in all of Judea. And then he goes to the next logical place, and that is Samaria, a land that is now empty and has been empty, nearly empty, for a hundred years because the Lord has shaken Israel like a reed and ripped them up from the root, but the spiritual reality still remains. And in chapter 23 and verse 15, moreover, The altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with which... And this day, a man with a spirit that could handle them, a man with the Holy Spirit in him, came and took care of the ordained business, the judgment that God said would come. And on that day at Bethel, on that day, the word of the Lord became death to those who would bring their God in their hands or those that would claim to be that God. On that day, this O Israel, is the Elohim who brought you out of Egypt was judged. That's the word of the Lord to those who would bring their God in their hand. That's a word that is terrifying to both the men that would participate and to the demonic realities that are behind it. So when you know the history of this deal, because Amos doesn't exist in a bubble, man, this has been where it's going from the very beginning, this is where it's headed in the end, and at this point, with Amos, they're a lot closer to the end than they are to the beginning. When you understand that, you realize, well, Amaziah reacts the way he does first thing he does is shoot off a dispatch to the king. You've got to do something about this buddy. Because we got another one is back. And last time nobody did anything about it. They ended up being the excrement of dogs in the city and carry-on in the countryside. And seeing how the false priest at Bethel that is priest over the cultic worship that supports the monarchy, seeing how Amaziah is that. Buddy, if you go down, I'm going down with you. And this is problematic. The land can't bear this. The lie doesn't have the strength to resist it. Now look, that's a dangerous place for the man of God to find himself in. Amos is a long way from home. You don't have any boys in Samaria. He sticks out like a sore thumb. He is a shepherd and we're going to find out a gatherer of sycamore figs. Not exactly the most kind of prominent place in the society of the ancient Near East and he is taking a hot poker and shoving it right in the eye of one of the most powerful dangerous place to be. This is why God's been raking him over the coals. What about this? Oh Lord, not that. Okay, not that. What about this? Oh Lord, not that. Okay, not that. Then Amos, how about me? Because if you're going to do what Amos is doing, you have to be able to come to a place where you don't just say you have faith, but you have faith that God is indeed. And that no matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult the things that He asks you to do, even if they end in your own painful death, then He knows what He's doing. And He's not only sovereign, but then He's good. And if justice needs to come, then justice coming is good. Perhaps the Lord will see fit to show mercy prophet has to die the prophet has to die this is not a new concept in scripture nor is it an old fashioned the exact same thing will later be said in the book of Revelation about us those who are ordained to captivity to captivity they must go those who are ordained to the sword by the sword must they be slain here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints Be trusting. For the men of God proclaiming and doing the things of God are an inherent threat to people who have replaced God with a lie. They're an inherent threat because it undermines the spiritual power behind them and therefore undermines them. So in Amos chapter 7 in verse 14 through 17 we're going to see it get personal real quick guys let me tell you when you're bringing a word of the lord that brings destruction to those that are apart from it if they do not return and rep- turn and repent that cannot by definition it is not academic gospel cannot be delivered to the lost in an academic fashion. I and mean, there's a lot that scripture has to say about the gospel. But if you think for a moment that by reasoning alone, I mean, if Paul couldn't pull it off. If Paul couldn't pull it off with the kings of his day, neither will you or I. If Agrippa and Festus are going to look at him and go, you know what? He almost convinced me. The reality is, is there has to be something more. This is going to be immediately personal. If you're not comfortable with the gospel being a personal thing to those that it is delivered to, you will never be comfortable with the gospel. Sometimes it is wonderfully personal and it is accepted and there is a joy and a bond with that person that you have that cannot be replaced by anything else. And there is also an enmity and a strife that is produced when it is rejected. That we can all pretend like doesn't exist, and and you can you know you can read the you can read all the evangelism materials you want, and 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 you know hey we do we keep going back for more and more as long as the Lord will allow us. But the reality is is man this deal is about life and death. It is about the condition of your soul in righteousness or evil. There is no way to talk about this academically which is exactly what happens, it instantly becomes personal. It instantly becomes personal. In chapter 7, in verse 6, in verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go and flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, it is the temple of the kingdom. Do you have the faith, do you have the guts to be able to deliver the word of the Lord? Because here it is for Amos. Here it is between Amos and Amaziah. Sometimes you get the word of the Lord between Joshua and Caleb and it's awesome. And sometimes you get it between Amos and Amaziah and it is a wretched thing to have to walk through. It's a wretched thing. Nobody wants to say what the Lord is about to require this man to say. And if you do want to say it, you don't have any business proclaiming the gospel. If you want to say this, then you need to go into your closet and you need to pray until God fixes you. Nobody wants to say this. This is being said out of faith and trust and understanding the real war that is going on between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. Amos says, Man, I'm not here because I thought it would be a cool gig. That's not why I'm here. Same deal, man. The Lord calls you to the pastorate, by all means, be excited. But if you think you're called to the pastorate because the pastorate is an exciting thing to you, man, dude, go sell cars. (laughs) It's not how it works. Man, this is what Paul said, the aroma everywhere of Christ. Everywhere we go, we're the aroma of Christ. To some, the fragrance of life to life. To some, the fragrance of death to death man enough or a woman enough? Do you have the faith of God? Little little boys, little girls, do do you have enough faith so that when God calls you to these things, that you are able in good conscience to do them? Because here is the word to Amaziah on that day. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. And this is not general. This is not general judgment. This is not general condemnation. This is as personal as it gets. I'm not even going to talk to you about you first. Let's talk about your old lady. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city, your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword your land shall be divided up with a measuring line, you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from this land. The reality of a spiritual kingdom, whether the spiritual kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of heaven, is that you cannot separate the individual from their kingdom. And so the word of the Lord that comes to Amaziah is not simply, listen, here's some general stuff about the kingdom of Israel, because there's kind of been this widespread, recidivistic sin amongst you that this is going to be the word of the Lord for Israel, and there's an implication that that's probably going to splash on you. He says, no, here's the deal, buddy. Your wife's going to be a prostitute. Your sons and your daughters, who all have names, are going to die by the sword, and you're going to have to watch it because you're not going to get to die by the sword first. You will die in a foreign land. And, and, Israel will surely go away into exile. The word of the Lord is not academic, it is personal. It is personal because it is either the hope of those who are bound to it or it threatens the death of those who oppose it. What will you do? What will you do? I think one of the things that's really clear here is that the, the larger politic at hand is never simply one of competing ideas about how best to pave roads and build bridges. When was the last time you ever heard two opposing political ideologies really get down and dirty about the best way to get after infrastructure? That's not what happens. What are men to fight about in the political arena? What are the issues of our day? Just like every day before us, they're not the things. Of, they're not the things of infrastructure and, and the body politic for the for the, the, the necessary physical maintenance of society. There are always things of righteousness versus evil. That's not new to our day. That's what they always are. They weren't arguing primarily about the best economic system in Germany. the 1920s and 1930s, that was the game board it played out on, but that's not what that deal was about. That wasn't an academic discussion it was, it was the battle between good and evil. Look at the Romans. and What was going on under Nero? That wasn't about urban creep and the need for more space to build to continue the glory of the empire. That was the difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And a scapegoat was needed. You can look. Alexander. you can look at Artaxerxes, you can go back and look at Nebuchadnezzar, you can look at all of the ones that were listed off to Daniel the picture of these empires it's always the same people say I don't like politics from the pulpit, well but if you're going to preach scripture, you're going to be preaching some politics from the pulpit, you don't have a choice both of these things are violent realm of the difference between righteousness and iniquity. And scripture speaks to all of it. And so here you've got Amos delivering a word that no righteous man wants to deliver to anybody. Who do you want to say that to? And yet he's doing it. He's doing the same things that the apostles would later do in Acts chapter 4. When rounded up by the council of the day, brought together, threatened that they should not preach anymore in the name of Christ. And they just looked at him and said, guys, whether it's right or wrong in your mind for us to do this, we basically have no control. But we can only proclaim that which we have seen and heard. Or, as Amos had said it in Amos chapter 3 verse 8. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord is spoken. Who can but prophesy? In spite of the hard word and in spite of the vicious, sometimes dangerous reaction that comes because of it. Amos is confident to prophesy. He says, who can but do these things? Why? Because he has faith in the Lord his God that he will indeed be faithful to the end and that what he is bringing about, no matter how difficult it may be, is definitively good. I would say this. When the judgment comes... Just like Amos and Amaziah, you will be reckoned as a member of a kingdom. You will be reckoned according to a spiritual reality that you are the very lineage of. What's it going to is it going to be this present darkness and the cosmos for and the world holders that come with it? Or is it going to be the kingdom of heaven with Jesus Christ on the throne? Which one's it going to be? For you were born a kingdom of this world. That's how you popped out. Every single one of us. Adam had a son in his own image. <clears throat> it is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that we cease to be the kingdom of this world and become the kingdom of heaven. Come to Christ and find out what it is to have that kind of confidence in faithful.